Monkey the Lego, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, the inherent violence of policing with Christina Hazelton and Jordan Camp. everyone today I have two guests uh, Christina Heatherton and uh, Jordan Camp um, they're both uh, they're the co-editors uh, together of uh, two books um, uh, one that was called uh, freedom now struggles for human rights to use to housing in Los Angeles and beyond uh, and a more recent book that is uh, coming out very soon and that will be the um, that will be the the main topic of discussion today, uh, Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. Uh, to give you a tiny bit more of individual uh, individual uh, bio, uh, Christina is an assistant professor in American Studies at Trinity College, and she also edited uh, the book Downtown Blues, a Skid Row Reader. And uh, Jordan is a postdoc um, at uh, is doing a postdoc at Brown University, and he is the author of the very recent book, "Incarcerating the Crisis: Freedom Struggles and the Rise of the ne Neoliberal State." Uh, hello to both of you. Hello. Uh, thank you for speaking to me today uh, in this uh, fourth um, conversation around as a sort of complement of uh, the latest issue of the Phenomenalist uh, magazine, uh, Design and Racism, as uh, the third one recorded in New York. Um, and so today we will really um, use this new book, Policy of the Planet, that is just an amazing book. And so probably the, the most logical thing to ask you to begin with is, uh, could, could you just very briefly introduce us to this book as a sort of curated body of work? Yeah, so uh, first, thanks so much for having us. Really delighted to speak with you, Leopold, and, and, and impressed by the work that you're doing. The book is a collaboration between scholars, artists, and activists to intervene in the current policing crisis. Uh, you know, we are in a context where it's been one year since uh, Freddie Gray was murdered and there was an uprising in Baltimore. It's been 24 years uh, since the uprising in Los Angeles after uh, the beating of Rodney King, almost a half century since uh, the Watts uprising. And it was in the context of the kind of mass questioning of policing that's happened. And our authors argue that it's the kind of deepest uh, legitimacy crisis for policing since the urban uprisings of the 1960s that we decided to combine the insights of scholars through essays with the interviews of uh, active, activists and intellectuals to make a contribution to debates about the origins of this crisis and alternative uh, solutions to it. So, And as you said, Leopold, uh, you know, this is a curated conversation, and part of our intention in, in curating this particular conversation was being able to bring together voices that are not normally, uh, uh, you know, considered together, um, which is to say we were also trying to uh, bring to together conversations that are, you know, normally considered discrete and separate. 
so we really wanted to think about the policing crisis and the response to the policing crisis with people like Patrice Cullors, who's one of the co-founders and co-visionaries of Black Lives Matter. But we also wanted to think about the policing crisis, you know, in midst of the crisis of mass incarceration, but in midst of the crisis of mass deportation, in an era of counterterrorism and domestic surveillance, uh, in a period where the state regulation of non-normative bodies is particularly intense. Uh, and so we brought together, you know... Um, Figures like the UCLA historian uh, Robin Kelly, uh, the American Studies scholar Christina Hanhart, the director of Communities United for Police Reform, Jihoon uh, Kang, the journalist Anjali uh, Kama, uh, also uh, figures like the Los Angeles Community Action Network and their co-founders uh, Pete White and Becky Dennison. And scholars, uh, we're here at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, we have people like uh, Ruth Wilson uh, Gilmore and uh, Naomi Morokawa from Princeton, as well as artists like uh, Martine Spada, who's uh, historic poem we opened the volume with, and uh, we also have uh, an interview with him. So the idea for us was that with this crisis, uh, before we as scholars really had any right to you know, make a contribution to an understanding of these events, that we needed to come to terms with the voices from people who were in the streets that had created the crisis to begin with and put them directly in dialogue uh, with uh, cutting-edge scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I failed to, to provide a good introduction because the, the, the book has also some, uh, at least two common, uh, two common links with this latest issue of The Phenomenalist, uh, one being uh, the, the article written by uh, Nikki Stas uh, about um, Lakota life and death in a uh, rapid city in South Dakota, and also because you, Christina, was was uh, very kindly part of the of, of the sort of uh, event uh, around around this issue, where you were also presenting the work that you've been collecting in this book uh, and um, commissioning for this book and. Um, uh, and we interviewed Nick Estes and the Red yeah. Nation. Isn't that a fantastic interview? Yeah, uh, it, it really is. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so there's there's one um, we we're gonna we're gonna sort of deploy uh, some of the key uh, uh, notions and names uh, that uh, come back uh, quite recurrently within the book. I mean, maybe the most um, the the most recurrent notion throughout this book is. Uh, the idea of the of the broken window theory mm -hmm. and uh, and doctrine we can we might even say could you maybe I introduce introduce it to people who might not be familiar with this doctrine sure um well you know, we start the book telling the story of Eric Garner, which, uh, you know, his story and his murder at the hands of the New York Police Department um, in Staten Island should be familiar to people. And we start the story as a way of saying that, you know, protesters picked up this rallying cry. Both they said, you know, I can't breathe as, as a way of, um, <laughs> uh, you know, recalling Garner's final words as he was choked by Daniel Pantaleo. Um, but they also picked up another rallying cry, which was something that Garner had said earlier, which is, this stops today. And we thought this was particularly poignant because so many activists took up, you know, subsequent to the, the killing of Michael Brown, the killing of Eric Garner and many others, people um, wanted uh, an, an end to the kind of policing that marked the lives of people like Eric Garner. Uh, and this is broken windows policing. What is broken windows policing? 
simply put, broken windows policing is the name of a philosophy might be too kind a word uh, to give to it, but a concept about policing that was first articulated in print in a 1982 Atlantic article uh, authored by James Q. Wilson and uh, Willie, uh, George Kelling. <laughs> um, and uh, Jordan, if you want to talk a little bit about the metaphor of broken windows. So uh, the metaphor goes that if a window in a neighborhood stays broken, it signals neglect and encourages uh, small crimes. And the way that uh, it's defined in that Atlantic Monthly uh, article, disorder is things like panhandling, uh, things like jaywalking, things uh, like sex work, right? And uh, the authors argue that if those small-scale activities go unchecked, it will lead to large-scale disorder, uh, criminality, and violence. And so it has authorized the targeting of the homeless, the poor, LGBT communities, black and brown youth, as a way of regulating their behavior and access to public space. And the metaphor is particularly revealing in that uh, broken windows are not uh, repaired, they are replaced. Just as uh, the poor and black people and LGBT communities are literally displaced or removed from the space, in order, we argue, to uh, attract capital and uh, make the space more amenable to the gentrification mm -hmm. of the city. Um, and so, through uh, through these doctrines, there's also another um, another element, let's say, that that comes back very recurrently in your book, and it, it is a, a a character, so to speak. I mean, it's uh, William Breton, the the police commissioner of um, uh, Boston, then New York, then Los Angeles, and now back in New York since uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, called him back. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about this uh, specific character? Because once again, it, it seems to polarize quite a lot of the, quite a lot of the doctrine that uh, we can see unfold through your books. Absolutely. Well, William Bratton is something of... Uh you know, poster child for broken windows policing. And, um, you know, that's not accidental. This is something he also claims his memoir is called The Turnaround, and he describes um, uh, not humbly <laughs> that he turned around New York City by the through the deployment of um, this form of policing. And, you know, this mythology has followed him as he's, uh, you know, occupied other positions as police chief in Los Angeles and now back again in New York. Um, uh, that he has cleaned up cities, turned them around for capital, uh, and, you know, it makes no apologies about the fact that he deploys, uh, he has been effective in deploying police power in an effort, as Jordan said, of, uh, you know, making cities amenable for new sites of capital investment. And this, in turn, has been a model that has been exported around the world, and Bratton has been hired as a security consultant by many governments, state entities, and different institutions. So after the 
uh, uprisings in 2011 in England. Bratton was, um, uh, you know, for example, contracted by the Metropolitan Police in London to, you know, describe how how, how to take care of business there. So, um, you know, Bratton's an effective figure in that so many of the mechanisms that we're trying to describe can be consolidated and traced through him. By no means are we saying that he is solely responsible uh, for this policy, but in, in order to, you know, illustrate to people what we mean when we say that broken windows policing is the social regulating mechanism of neoliberalism at an urban scale, you know, being able to trace his movement alongside the movement of capital renders vivid how these things go hand in hand. Um, and I should just say, because as Jordan said, we're at the CUNY Graduate Center right next to the office of Neil Smith. And, you know, this uh, connection was particularly illuminated by Neil Smith in his writings about broken windows policing, um, in his description of uh, the movement of capital in New York City and how policing ended up uh, operationalizing that practice. And when we say policing the planet, we're talking, we're, we're trying to imagine how this process has been generalized around the world. Exactly. I mean, following Smith's lead, particularly in his now, what we think is perhaps the, uh, still the most uh, apt document about the origins of broken windows, it's called Giuliani Time, which he wrote mm -hmm. in Social Texts, you know, almost 20 years ago now. And we really uh, follow his lead and thinking through, again, not that Bratton's solely responsible, but in some ways, he's an architect for this new urban revanchism. And, uh, you know, about a year ago, uh, Bratton was interviewed, and you know he says, "This is the deepest uh, crisis of race and policing that he had seen since 1970 when he when he joined policing." And this is one thing that we absolutely uh, agree with uh, Bratton about. Unwittingly, uh, I think he points to what. Uh, Ruth Gilmore and Craig Gilmore in their essay, Beyond Bratton, describe as a kind of post-Ferguson uh, legitimation crisis for U.S. policing and prisons for the very model that uh, Bratton had helped usher in. As New York uh, Police Commissioner 20 years ago, but they looked specifically at Los Angeles, and that case is really interesting because he was recruited to help solve an earlier legitimation crisis in the wake of the beating of Rodney King and the largest, or the then largest, urban uprising in U.S. history. And how does he do so? Well, he actually goes to the civil rights establishment, which is a very interesting story. Connie Rice is one of the leading attorneys in California. She had sued the police department more than any other uh, attorney. And uh, Bratton reaches out to her and gets her, in her words, and as the Gilmores demonstrate, to, you know, uh, trade in her opposition to the police department for a badge and a parking space. And she says she never gave it up, right? Because she liked it, uh, because she says politicians are scared of the police. And so, we're really interested in looking at how Bratton's uh, model has on one hand helped uh, legitimate this unprecedented expansion of policing, uh, helped naturalize the demonization and the mass criminalization of homelessness and of poverty, and how that model has become 
the political expression of neoliberal capitalism at the urban scale. And so uh, in that way, we think that Bratton is illustrative of a much broader uh, shift that's happened, you know, over the last uh, 40 years. Um, so I'd like to maybe re-insist on the fact that each of uh, each of the texts and uh, the interviews that are contained in these books are, are absolutely remarkable, both individually and as a as a collective. Uh, but uh, I also guess that each reader will find uh, one or two particular texts that they will feel particularly um, uh, 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 appealed by. And uh, I mean, the the one that definitely comes to my mind immediately is uh, the interview you've been doing with Naomi Murakawa. And um, also because I'm always very admirative of the way she's able to concentrate uh, some complex mechanism of structural racism into, <laughs> quite frankly, just a few sentences. I mean, the interview is actually very short, mm -hmm. um, but uh, short, but extremely, uh, extremely powerful. Um, and And there is this one moment where the three of you talk about police brutality, this sort of term we've been uh, we've been hearing a lot about, uh, that actually very few people are contesting. Um, but but uh, obviously in the interview, you're um, uh, I mean she's comp com complexifying this by saying the police brutality as as itself is a is a is a misleading notion in the fact that it's um, uh, it's It's only the spectacular violence of a much broader system of structural racism. Could you could you maybe elaborate on that? And I mean, uh, also because uh, obviously when you ask her questions, you have something something very clear in mind that definitely goes along those lines as well. Sure. Um, well, Naomi does an incredible job of uh, critiquing in a very succinct way some of the limitations in our language and, f and framing, right? And so she flips it on its head in that interview. She says, you know, let's think about the kind of reforms being proposed for policing. You know, can we, uh, you know, can we stop police brutality? Can we make policing less racist? And she says, you know, this presumes that the problem is a question of excess, right? That there is such a thing as non-racist policing or there is such a thing as policing that happens without brutality or the or force or the threat of force, which she says is practically indistinguishable. Um, and uh, part of her argument is that this kind of mentality um, that we can achieve a more procedurally just form of policing is a liberal fallacy, right? And she says, you know, this is not just a kind of um, shortcoming of the moment. She traces this back to the 60s and says, you know, I mean, her book, right, uh, The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built the Carceral State, the Prison America, Prison America right, um, you know, argues this as well, where she's trying to say we have to be mindful not just of the kind of pernicious and overtly racist Uh, you know, mythologies that inform, um, that, you know, uh, legitimate the, um, uh, the, what am I trying to say, that, that legitimate the, uh, the funding of, of policing. But we also have to think about this inclination that, you know, we can bring policing back into line, that we can make it more procedurally just, as if such a thing exists. And, You know, Naomi does such a fantastic job of saying this is a fiction. 
Policing operates as it's supposed to operate. There are a limited number of things that police can actually do. And so the question we have to ask is why have they been authorized to do so much in excess of that? And and that, that's that's part of what leads to the current crisis. Yeah, and I think, you know, Murakawa, it's important for us to say that she's, you know, uh, operating in a context where liberals like the President Obama's administration have uh, orchestrated this task force on 21st century policing, right? And it's uh, understanding, as your question suggests, uh, of racism, uh, Murakawa argues is rather limited, right? It's limited to the idea that, uh, and, and the Obama administration seems unusual in that it's willing to concede that there is racism, right? And the Ferguson report, you know, from the Department of Justice documented it, right? But its understanding of racism is to limit it to basically a few bad apples, you know, some emotional misfires, as Murakawa puts it, of a few bad cops who are individually racist and they have bad attitudes and the rest. Now, what are the stakes in defining racism in this way rather than in the more capacious way that Murakawa advocates both in the interview and in her book? I think it's pretty clear. And it has to do with the solutions to the problem uh, that are offered up if you accept this individualistic uh, notion of, of racism. Uh, diversity training can fix the problem. Uh, some body cameras so you can catch the you know, uh, bad cop uh, gone uh, astray and the rest of it. And what Murakawa is trying to shift us away from in saying that these reformist solutions don't actually get to the root of the problem, she's offering essentially a materialist definition of racism that says in this current political system, right, that we have to actually look to the roots elsewhere, right? And but that is the entire criminal justice system in the institutions is where structural racism lives. So if we want to address structural racism, it simply will not be enough to do a diversity training, right? To hire more black officers or something. I mean, in a place like New York City, it's already almost, you know, majority um, officers of color. So, you know, the stakes, I think, in that intervention are, you know, rather high. Um, so I think, uh, I, I think this is amazing because that's exactly what I wanted to address, the fact that through... Um, through the racism of policing, we're able to to question uh, racism as a whole. Uh, the idea that uh, racism is not a, some sort of, uh, uh, as uh, Naomi says, a, a sort of misconception. Uh, it's it is very much a, a, a set of apparatuses, and I think that leads us when it comes to policing to the idea that the police doesn't need to be reformed. It might. Need to be, it may need to be uh, fully abolished, and that brings us to another conversation you've been having in the book with uh, three uh, founders of the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, um, who uh, and and a few other a few other people in the book that simply call for the abolition of the police, and I'm very glad to talk about that because we already had a conversation uh, along those lines with uh, Nasrin Imada about prison abolition that obviously led us uh, to the to to uh, the abolition of the police and um, because obviously those things are, are, are go hand in hand and um, and maybe to to talk 
to talk about that, um, I think I, I was very touched by a quote by uh, Martin Espada in uh, in uh, that you all, who you also interviewed, who says no change for the good ever happens without it being imagined first. And I think that 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 was a very powerful quote in term when it comes to abolition because the first thing that people who are not necessarily familiar with those notions of abolitions of prison, abolitions of police, the first thing they have in mind is uh, literally nothing, as mm-hmm. in they they cannot imagine uh, what what that actually means. So can we can we actually talk about that uh, and um, both in relation to your books and even like to in, even more broadly? Sure. Well, you know, in the uh, interview we do with the organizers from We Charge Genocide, which is, you know, a powerful youth-led movement out of Chicago, they take their name um, from a uh, uh, from the fact that they filed a petition with the United Nations. Um, In 1951, you know, uh, William L. Patterson uh, submitted a document called We Charge Genocide to the U.N., uh, at the same time that Paul Robeson s- submitted a document here in uh, New York to the UN office, he can travel because his passport was being denied. And these young people, uh, Asha, Rosa, Paige, May, Brianna, Champion, uh, were the representatives we spoke to, called on that history of the black freedom struggle to, doc- to document the systemic racist police violence in Chicago and to internationalize uh, that struggle by going to the UN. And they were not uh, simply, you know, asking for a kind of uh, tinkering uh, of the machine. Rather, they're articulating an alternative uh, vision. They're trying to struggle for what they're calling uh, a lot of these members are also part of a group called Black Youth Project 100, and they're talking about funding black futures. So their vision for the future is to say, rather than spending so much of the social budget towards uh, mass criminalization, that it should instead go to things like, you know, jobs programs uh, for young people to get at this massive unemployment crisis that we have to, you know, put uh, funding into education. Yeah, and, you know, what was so extraordinary in talking to them was that Paige May, you know, is a very fierce organizer out of Chicago, actually, you know, in the midst of the conversation, admitted that abolition was a terrifying concept for her and said, you know, this, she knew it was a hip word, but what did it actually mean? And as you said, you know, it, abolition seems to signal black right? So if you don't have the police, then then what, right? Then panic ensues. Um, And so, you know, I thought what was very helpful in the interview was her explaining how she came to terms, how she came to differently understand the concept. And as Jordan said, you know, this, um, you know, the abolitionist vision isn't just one of dismantling. It's necessarily one of counter-positioning and, and growth, imagining what kind of society we want. So if we don't want a society that invests in death, how do we imagine a, a society that invests in life and life-generating processes? And as, as Jordan mentioned, you know, the definition of abolition draws on the long history of the freedom struggles, right? Um, and so, you know, earlier in the book, in the interview with Patrice Cullors, uh, you know, she and I have a dialogue about abolition in relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois's definition of abolition, which I take to be 
that nobody can be free in a society premised on exclusion. Nobody can be free. So the point isn't that, you know, you get uh, the reins of power and then, you know, you take that power um, as an opportunity to exclude another group, right? You have to reimagine society anew. You have to reimagine what freedom means outside of the context of, frankly, how capitalism delimits our imagination of it. And so having an abolitionist vision means, first off, taking very sober stock of how our society is currently organized and being able to reckon with the fact that in local, state, and national budgets, the disproportionate amount of public funding goes towards death-dealing practices. It goes to militarism. It goes to policing. And so when, you know, authors throughout the volume, as we've been talking about, complained about the fact that police are operating as mental health counselors, as guardians against park trespass, as, uh, you know, public housing guardians, you know, when they're doing jobs because we've made decisions as a society to not fund people who are actually trained to do those jobs, but we in, in, you know, infuse police in those positions, we end up having this not only dramatic social crisis, but this total confusion about what the society is actually meant to produce. Um, if, you know, in other words, instead of recognizing things like mental health problems, drug problems, housing problems, these all become criminal issues. And for most poor people in this country, for most people in this country, simply existing becomes a liability. The abolitionist vision says we need to come up with something better. Yeah, you know, uh, I was glad that you mentioned the interview with Patrice Colors because she says, you know, this is a conversation that hadn't happened as much in the Black Lives Matter movement as she had hoped for. And she cites Angela Y. Davis, the, you know, one of the preeminent uh, philosophers of freedom, really. And you know, one of the co-founders of a group called Critical Resistance, who has been struggling for two decades to uh, dismantle what they call the prison industrial complex, right? And uh, Angela Davis uh, often talks uh, about, uh, as Christina's suggesting, what W.B. Du Bois called abolition democracy. Du Bois, you know, introduced that concept in a book called Black Reconstruction in America in the 1930s, right? 1935. Yeah, right, 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 1935. <laughs> and uh, it referred to the period uh, in the 1860s and the 1870s when black people had won their own freedom, right, through uh, a general strike, right? And they had created new institutions, first public schools come out of uh, this tradition. And Du Bois caught it up to say that there was unfinished business of abolition democracy amidst the deepest crisis of the capitalist uh, world system, that the, the vision of formerly enslaved people could help uh, inform the labor movement, for example. So it was key to the emancipation of working class people as a whole. Critical resistance has taken up this idea in our own moment, you know, in the wake of the 2008 crisis. Now we have still unfinished business of abolition democracy, right? And so when we, you know, 
turn to people like Ruth Gilmore, who's also uh, a part of Critical Resistance, uh, Craig Gilmore, one of the co-founders of Critical Resistance, and then we have an essay by uh, Rachel Herzing, who was also uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Critical Resistance. And I think Rachel has some uh, very interesting uh, insights uh, that I think an abolitionist uh, vision helps us understand. And that is, she says, policing is not a broken system in need of repair. It is a highly accurate and efficient means of protecting state interest and maintaining social control. So it's not broken in that, right, in that respect. Um, I think that kind of analytic, that diagnostic of the problem is absolutely critical as we try to imagine solutions to the current policing crisis. Because otherwise, as our concluding essay by Vijay Prashad uh, suggests, this ends badly. You know, the common sense of our times will, it, you know, lead to a bad end, right? It's not enough to say, uh, Prashad argues, that, you know, it's the policeman or something like this. This is a problem of a system. So when we talk about abolition, we actually are talking about the ways in which uh, the unprecedented express expansion of policing and prisons are problems of neoliberal capitalism, right? And so what the book offers as an alternative, and we think this is the abolitionist demand, uh, if you like, is a social wage, right? Uh, that is universal access to uh, the institutions, right? Education, public housing, public transit, right? That could provide the material basis for the transformation uh, of the society and the shrinking of the capacities of policing prisons and uh, urban security. So um, we think that this is, uh, you know, a forgotten idea of the social wage, but we want to bring it back into uh, the conversation because we think that it can help give us a, a set of principles and a framework for organizing a, an alternative uh, in this uh, very uh, unpredictable time that we, we live in now. Mm -hmm. Maybe just going back to the very term of abolition, I think mm. something uh, some things that I, I feel might be important to also note is uh, the fact that the, the term is obviously forever linked to the history of slavery, mm -hmm. and it's it's not it's in no way innocent that it comes back through uh, black intellectuals and activists. I mean, we talked about W.B. Du Bois and, mm -hmm. and Angela Davis. Uh, so uh, we, we have here people who understand the full uh, notion of what abolition means and if they're able to equate this notion with the history of slavery as like the, one, uh, the, the worst uh, industrial machines of death that's been ever invented... Uh, then it probably says a lot about the system in which we're living, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we, th we think <laughs> of the system that we live in, you know, as initially, you know, this system of a kind of 
slave racial capitalism uh, in the way that uh, Walter Johnson talks about it in uh, River of Dark Dreams. And, you know, racial capitalism changes over time. It takes new forms. There's, you know, Jim Crow uh, capitalism that obtained, uh, you know, from the 1890s uh, till the late 20th century. And what we've seen in this current moment is a rearticulation of the relationships between uh, race and class, uh, mass criminalization, and the capitalist political economy, such that uh, policing and prisons becomes the manifestation of structural racism. So the unfinished business of abolition democracy, you know, the reason we, we call on this history of uh, freedom struggles is to say, as exactly as a spotter does, right, that the abolitionist demand is to confront these problems, right? And I'll just say one last thing in that Espada is absolutely right, you know. You would have been deemed a nut in 1850 to say that you were going to overthrow a system of slave racial capitalism, right? You, you couldn't have seen the end of it, right? Uh, or in, you know, uh, you know, 1930, it seemed extreme to be in Jim Crow, Alabama, and say that you were going to overthrow Jim Crow, right? And so it seems now to talk about uh, abolition as a, a utopian uh, vision. But we actually think that it's quite practical, you know, that uh, policing and prisons, they produce the problems that they purport to prevent in the way that uh, George Lipsitz puts it in uh, his essay on uh, the criminalization of homelessness and poverty in Skid Row. And so if we actually want to solve the social problems that we see, you know, in some cities, 30, 35% unemployment among, you know, uh, black and Latino communities for decades, then uh, this is actually, uh, you know, a practical response to those problems. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to add to that because I think a particularly interesting articulation of this comes in the interview with the Red Nation, which is a you know native-led council of uh, indigenous and non-indigenous people in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who are um, confronting, as they say, colonialism and capitalism, an ongoing struggle uh, against it, um, both in the area and in uh, border towns, which are... Um, urban centers adjacent to Native American reservations. And as Nick Estes uh, describes in the new issue of the Ponambalist, did I pronounce it kind of right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as uh, he, Melanie Yazi, Sam Gardipe, uh, Chris Banks, and Paige Murphy describe in the interview, you know, border towns um, are significant because uh, Native people in this country and I, I think elsewhere are imagined as living um, in reservations. And so, you know, being able to say, well, you know, what is it, three-fifths of Native people live off reservations and in border towns, um, you know, really forces us to confront with the existence of Native people, how they're being policed. And, you know, the Red Nation has a concept of a living social wage, which they say, you know, is not only part of the vision of abolition democracy, but they say is related to the unfinished business of unfulfilled treaties, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, they 
the Red Nation puts their struggle in a long history against colonialism and capitalism. And they say the capitalism is premised on the elimination of native people. This is, you know, and, and so when you think about a town like Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is one of the highest, if not the highest rates of police killings of people in the country, native people are the racialized group actually the most likely to be killed by police. You know, it's, there's a, a scandalous silence around how this violence affects Native people and, as importantly, how Native people are organizing to confront this and how they understand their struggle. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure to put that in the mix, too, because when we're thinking about racial capitalism, you know, there are multiple as some people say, pillars upon which it's built. And so it's, you know, the entwined, the entwined economies of both slavery, native genocide, militarism, the production of borders. You know, we have to understand how these things are reproduced, how they are congealed, how they produce, how they reproduce themselves as social relations and how we are confronting new iterations of them in our cities today. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, just a word for our, you know, listeners elsewhere. Uh, the most brilliant still uh, analysis of the origins of what we're calling racial capitalism remains Cedric Robinson's book called Black Marxism. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Uh, he uh, wrote it almost over 30 years ago now, but it was re-released uh, by the University of North Carolina Press with a new introduction by Robin D.G. Kelly, one of our contributors. And so He's really informed the thinking of both Christina and I and the contributors as well. Uh, and I think that, you know, this argument that the Red Nation is making about a racial and colonial uh, capitalism and how it has produced its own contradictions. It has uh, ensured uh, a, a consistent, consistent resistance to its exploitation, to its expropriation, right? And their strategy for confronting the problems of racial and colonial capitalism are to create a broad-based alliance among indigenous peoples, non-indigenous peoples, working class people. uh, Palestinian people? Palestinian people, and they say that this organizing is informed by the idea, as Estes puts it, that solidarity is not hard, right? That uh, it is born and forged in struggle. So it's interesting. You know, they actually came out of anti-police violence work. They came out of work where they were in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, with Palestine. And so we think that sometimes these uh, struggles are imagined uh, discreetly, right? That we have a struggle against unprecedented mass deportation over here, that we have a struggle against the, you know, prison industrial complex there, uh, against permanent war here, settler colonialism there. And what our contributors are teaching us is that we need to understand, again, that this is a problem of a unified system, and it's going to require a unified movement. One last thing. In our uh, book launch at the Schomburg, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore explained uh, the limits of this idea of ally, right, that have emerged in the movement. And she says it's a military metaphor. 
you have military allies for a particular battle, and then you know you uh, ditch that you know ally. Once the campaign is done. And Gilmore says, this is an incorrect way to think about uh, building solidarity. Uh, This is not sufficient for uh, addressing uh, the problems we face. Because after all, uh, the surveillance, policing, mass criminalization uh, target people on a large scale together. So why do we imagine our opposition separately, right? We instead have to think about a common uh, basis for struggle. So we think uh, in policing the planet that the struggle against, again, the social regulating mechanism for neoliberal capital at the urban scale, confronting that in cities from New York to London to, you know, Los Angeles to San Juan, as uh, Marisol Lebron uh, analyzes in her fine essay on uh, Broken Windows Police in in Puerto Rico uh, called Mano Dura, is a way of uh, building uh, solidarity uh, at the global uh, scale to confront uh, neoliberalism directly. Well, Christina and Jordan, thank you so much for uh, spending this uh, time with me talking about this book, Policing the Planet. I realize that when the interview will be out, actually the book will be already out, so it's uh, it's published uh, by Verso. Uh, so obviously after this conversation, I think I barely need to invite anyone to buy it. I think everybody <laughs> will be convinced. <laughs> of, yeah, <laughs> but uh, thank thank you thank thank you so much for um, for uh, being part of this series. Oh, no, thank you so much for having us. It's a real delight. (laughs) Thanks.